Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. All right, uh, nice quiet time. I guess we shall begin. Uh, today we are going to be in chapter 8 of the book of Acts. We are uh, continuing on from the, the narrative. Uh, it's, it's right on the heels. There's a lot of boom, boom, boom action in this part of Acts. Uh, what we covered last time was the account of Stephen. Stephen, who was appointed as one of the seven, those that would wait on tables. Uh, he would help with the distribution of food to the widows. We had at the beginning of uh, chapter six, there was this little controversy because the um, Hellenists said that their widows weren't being served. And again, it's not entirely clear what all of that was about, if it was uh, just... Uh, an accident because there might have been this language cultural barrier or whether there was a little bit of uh, tension between the the Hebrew-speaking Jews and the Greek-speaking Jews. It's hard to say, but the point of it all was that the apostles recognized that they couldn't do everything, that they needed help. And so rather than getting bogged down or distracted and stop preaching that word, stop being the witnesses that God had called them to be, they appointed these uh, servants um, to wait on the tables. Stephen was one of those. And then we hear how Stephen is also found in some of the synagogues. And so it would seem that Stephen wasn't just doing basic stuff of handing out tables. Uh, he also had conversations. And in his conversations, he was doing what was natural to him through the power of the Holy Spirit, talking about Jesus. And that got him into a little bit of trouble because in some of these synagogues, there might have been people who believed Jesus was now that Messiah that the Hebrew scriptures pointed to. But there were also some people that weren't sure about that and in fact were rather against it. But they couldn't they couldn't win in any arguments against this Stephen. He, he had that wisdom from the Spirit, and he could point them every place that they thought that they were right, that, no, this is actually pointing to Jesus. And so he gets called in before the Sanhedrin, before the council. This is the high authority uh, in, in, the, uh, in the city of Jerusalem um, over the Jews. It's connected with the temple, and charges were brought against him that he was speaking blasphemy, blasphemy. He was speaking against the temple, God's holy place, and he was speaking against the law. And so we had this really long speech uh, that I, I very, very much went over the top of that. This is like the longest speech in the book of Acts, and we could spend much more time there. But the point of his speech there in chapter 7 was to show that while they were saying he was speaking against the holy place, the temple, and against Moses, he took them through the story of the Hebrew Bible and showed that priority-wise, there is a story about God and his relationship with his people that existed before the temple and before the law. So there is a greater priority to understand how does God work in the first place and what is he about? And Stephen points out that God, God is a God of, of all places. He's not just tied down to a specific place. Uh, he is a God who, however, does tie himself down, not necessarily to a place, but to a people by his covenant that he made with Abraham. He promised that he would bless him. He would make him a great nation. He would bless all the world through Abraham. He would curse those who cursed him and his offspring. And so priority-wise, the story of Abraham 
is even more important than the story of Moses. But then he goes on and he does talk about Moses and the temple as well. And he points out that these Sanhedrin and, and the people who are against him, both Sadducees and Pharisees, they're actually a lot like the Israelites. The stiff-necked Israelites. The Israelites who, while Moses was on the mountain receiving that instruction from the Lord, went and built themselves an idol, a golden calf, and worshipped it and incurred God's wrath. Or the Israelites who, while wandering in the wilderness, while Moses is leading, while God is leading Moses, uh, complain and don't trust God. And so as Stephen kind of gets to this point where he turns and shows how Stephen himself wasn't speaking against the the temple or against the law. Rather, that understanding that these were the most important parts of Judaism was a misunderstanding of what God had been showing them and teaching them throughout scripture. He then turns the mirror on the people there and calls them the stiff-necked Israelites, the uncircumcised. Uh, remember, circumcision is the sign of the covenant. And Stephen has made this picture that God binds himself to the covenant and to the people of the covenant. He's basically saying, you're out. You're not a part of this relationship um, because of their stubbornness and because they aren't listening to what God has said. So he, he sort of shows that. And as we said, the results are quite predictable. Um, they realize that Stephen is, is, the more he talks, the more he's convicting them rather than convicting himself. And so they, they stone him. This is not an example of justice, justice properly served. Remember, the Israelites are under the authority of the Roman government. And so when they uh, want to punish somebody with capital punishment, uh, take their life, they can't really do that without the authority of the Roman government. The Roman government has that final authority. That's why Pontius Pilate gets involved in Jesus's uh, trial. But here, they do commit that capital punishment. They kill Stephen. But this is more an example of mob justice than a, a real um, trial. It's just, at this moment in time, they got so incensed that they took it upon themselves. And in this kind of mob justice, even though it would technically be illegal um, in stoning, how, how do the Romans punish that, you know? Which, which stone is it that killed Stephen? And, and so they kind of are getting away with this, and it becomes a way for the uh, Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, to realize, okay, this, this might be how we're going to have to deal with this, because obviously we've seen the, the normal legal system, the justice system, isn't working. We can do this to create fear. We can do this to, to quiet them up, to shut them up. And that's going to be what leads to chapter 8, that a great persecution arises in Jerusalem. Again, this is not really sanctioned persecution. The Roman government seems to be uninvolved. This is just those people who remained true to what they thought the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures said, and that Jesus was not the Messiah. They were trying to stomp out their faith of all of what they deemed to be heresy. That is the Christians, because they were speaking about Jesus as though he were God. And they all knew there's only one God and Jesus can't be another God. So this is heresy. We need to get rid of this. That's the scene that's in chapter eight. And we've seen persecution before with the apostles, but this seems to be more general and more widespread. And so it has a greater effect. When the apostles were before the Sanhedrin and council, uh, at first they pray for boldness and then they rejoice to know that they are privileged to share in the sufferings of Jesus. That just as Jesus faced the Sanhedrin and uh, was, was given that ultimate punish, that, that they were just given a measure of it. They were whipped. 
and then release. So they rejoiced in that. So it didn't shut the apostles up. But here, when the persecution is more widespread, when it's more, might we say, impromptu, um, that it seems now that the Jews led by Saul are sort of seeking out Christians to persecute, that people start to run. It's, it's interesting, though, as you get to um, the beginning of chapter 8. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. We're going to talk more about Saul, but here Luke is putting Saul into all of this. As the first reader uh, of Acts, uh, the, the person that Luke dedicates the book to, Theophilus, remember, he's already a Christian. The Gospel of Luke was written so that he would know for certain the things that he was already taught and believed were true. And so Luke says, I I researched it. I talked to eyewitnesses. So he already knew about the Gospel. This was just to give him more certainty. And Theophilus, we, we said we don't know exactly who he is, but it seems like he's probably a Gentile. Um, that name, Theophilus, it, it, it is... A, a Greek name for one, but it could be a way to hide his identity. And he's just talked about as one who's loved by God. Um, and, and a Roman official, that was one of the other hypotheses because he's called most excellent Theophilus. So Theophilus here is already a Gentile. And so he's living at a time when the gospel is known and has gone out to Gentiles. The book of Acts talks about how this is going to happen. And we know that Saul or Paul is that missionary to the Gentiles. So when he gets to this point in the story, he knows who Saul is. Luke doesn't have to say, you you know who this Saul is and go into his story. He's going to get into Saul's story in the next chapter and Saul's conversion. But here just sort of planting that seed and saying, and this is, this is Saul's background. He was there at Stephen's death. He was a part of it. He approved of it. And he was one who's going to then seek out more Christians in order to put them to death. So, so Saul's there. Uh, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So this doesn't scare the apostles. They're still there doing exactly what the the Lord called them to do. They don't feel it's their time to go. Um, They're following the leading of the Holy Spirit, it would seem. So this isn't necessarily a, a, a judgment on them that, that they should have gone out just like everybody else did. Don't they see that this is their opportunity to get away? They're remaining those faithful witnesses until it seems to them, okay, we, we need to be doing something else. Just like they weren't distracted in chapter six with, you need to now serve on table, serve the tables, apostles. They're like, no, we were called to be witnesses. We have to preach that word in they're going to still remain steadfast in that. So now other people, other Christians are going, but the apostles remain. Um, and the point is, this is just going to further the kingdom. And what we are going to see is that actually the apostles aren't really the first ones to get the word out. We know this because of Pentecost itself. Remember, all of those different people from all the nations came to Jerusalem. The apostles uh, were filled with the Holy Spirit. We have the tongues of fire, the languages, and all of those people from different areas after Pentecost, they were going to go home. So we already sort of know that the message was going out. And yes, I guess the apostles were responsible for that because they proclaimed that message there in Pentecost, but God sent it with all of those other people. They weren't commissioned apostles, but nevertheless, the word got out so that when Paul is traveling around to different areas, there are churches already in some places. Some places he's starting churches, some places they're already there. But here is another place where the people are just scattering and they're bringing with them the word of God. How do we know that? 
because we're going to hear about a guy named Philip who does exactly this. He brings God's word with him to wherever he goes. The aftermath of Stephen. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So again, he's going to do his utmost, but the gospel is not going to be imprisoned. So Luke is contrasting what is happening with Saul. This is all Satan's game plan. Try to shut the message up. But we've seen, first of all, it didn't happen because some of the people who believed scattered. And now we're going to turn to the story of Philip. And the message we see is not contained. In fact, it gets out to even more areas. All right. Two stories about Philip are in chapter eight. One is a story about Philip going to Samaria. Uh, Samaria refers to a region. There is a city called Samaria. It's a little unclear in, in the text whether he's talking about a specific um, city of Samaria or just to uh, a some city of Samaria. So some translations of the Bible say he went to the city of Samaria, which would like mean the most important city or the capital city. Other translations, your, your Bibles may have a footnote on it, just say a city of Samaria. For our purposes, it's unimportant. The important thing is he's going to Samaria. And that's important because that wouldn't be a natural place for a Jew to go. Why is that? Why wouldn't a Jew naturally go to Samaria? Well, Samaritans and Jews are enemies. Yeah, they don't get along so well. They don't get along so well. Is there any specific the Bible stories that you can sh show to prove that? A good story about a Samaritan. What one might that be? Oh, the, the, the parable, the, the, the good Samaritan? Okay. And so remember, the rub with that is that the, the Jewish people that you would think are like on the highest rung of God's holiness, the priest, the Levite, they're the ones that don't help this man who is injured on the road. So although they might seem devout in their faithfulness to God, they show no understanding of God's law, which is to, to show love and concern, especially for the helpless and one who's injured alongside the road would certainly count. Um, but the Samaritan, the Samaritan is the one who helps. And so the, the punchline there is not just a random person sees and helps this man or a lay person, but a Samaritan. Somebody that the Jews are like, these are kind of the worst of the worst. And now Jesus is lifting that Samaritan up and saying, go, do likewise, be, be like him. So that's, that's a chief one. And Luke has that one in his gospel. So again, when he's talking about Samarian Samaritans, this is all within the canon of Luke's narrative. Other stories of Samaritans or something else? Okay, the woman at the well, that's, that's in John's gospel, John 4. That's another uh, very good one. Jesus comes up to a Samaritan woman, which is uh, shocking to the disciples on a number of different levels. One, because it's a woman, and talking to a woman alone in, in public is not really a good thing culturally. Um, it, it might look like you're trying to undermine her marriage, uh, that, that she belongs to another family and you're a man alone. You could do something to her to harm her. But Jesus talks to her and they have this extended conversation. Um, do you remember any of the conversation that he has with the woman at the well? She's been married several times. Okay, yeah. So this is one of the ways that she's like amazed at, at what Jesus is doing because he goes and says, you know, tell your husband and I well, don't have a husband. Yeah, that's true. You don't have a husband. You've had quite a few, right? And the one you're with right now isn't your husband. And she's like, 
how do you know this about me? Okay, so that's one part of the conversation. Anything else in that conversation that popped up? Living water, okay, and so that fits the context because they're there at a well, and you know, you have to keep coming back and coming back to get this water. Living water, water that you wouldn't need to refill, wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. There's one other component to it. Well, there's probably more, but I want to pick out one more. She did go, yeah, so she told everybody in the city everything that Jesus knew about her. And his disciples Yeah, the disciples weren't a fan of this, uh, again, for a number of different reasons. One, because it was a, a woman and they were alone, but because it was a Samaritan. There's another part. Jesus does talk to her about the Messiah, right? That They have that little conversation and... It gets into worship and, oh, you Jews, you worship in Jerusalem. We don't, we don't do that. We do it at Mount Gerizim. Um, but they do, they do show this recognition that they know about a Messiah. So Samaritans and Jews are different by ethnicity. They have a shared ethnicity, um, but it, it gets a little bit complicated because the Samaritans are people who live kind of in an area north of Jerusalem. And that was an area that the Assyrian Empire conquered before they got down to Jerusalem. Babylonians conquered Jerusalem in 586, but it's in 722 that Assyria conquers that northern region, Samaria. And they do the same thing that the Babylonians did. They exile people and then they bring in other groups. The Jews are brought to one other part of the world. People from another part of the world are brought into Samaria. And so there's mixed marriages, um, there's syncretism, sharing of beliefs and ideas and culture and religion. Um, and it doesn't work. At the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when the people of, of Babylon, uh, who are Jews, coming back from captivity, they come back to Jerusalem with the intent to rebuild the temple. The Samaritans pop up there and the Samaritans want to either cooperate with the Jews who have come back so that they kind of get their say or they want to stop the the Jews from doing it all by themselves and make sure that that temple never gets rebuilt in the first place. So like and this is hundreds of years later. The point is this conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews it's so old that it's kind of like you couldn't even say where it began anymore. It's just we've always hated one another, and that's kind of how things are. There are a couple of encounters that Jesus has in the Gospels where he forbids his disciples to go to the cities of Samaria. Um, there is an instance where Jesus tries to go to the cities of Samaria and his disciples are not welcomed there because this is when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And so it would seem, oh, you just, you're, you're just going to Jerusalem to your city. We don't, we don't even want your kind here. And Jesus' disciples say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven just to burn that whole city up? Um, that's, that's a good example of how Jews felt about the Samaritans. It may be like Sodom and Gomorrah. So the fact that Philip is even going to Samaria could say one of two things. One is that's how scared people were of the persecution that was now happening. If, if they're looking for you, you want to go in the safest place, the place that they're least likely to look for you. And if you're going to Samaria, it's basically like, yeah, the, the Jews of Jerusalem will say, let them be among the dogs. We don't care anymore. The Samaritans, we're not even going to bother them. Let them be. So that's one way to look at it. But there's another way, and I think this might be the better way based on what Philip does in Samaria, is a recognition that the Jews have closed their ears to this message. They, they're, they're, they're throwing us out of the city. They're trying to take our lives. I'm going to take this message elsewhere going to take this show on the road. That's what Jesus told his disciples to do in his ministry when he sent them out one time, two by two. You know, if they welcome you, stay in the city and, and, and preach the word, proclaim the kingdom of God. But if, if they don't, 
then shake off the dust from your sandals, let that city be condemned, and just move on, move on to the next place. So going to Samaria, you have to know this is not just any ordinary city. This is not just a a regular kind of encounter. This is going across a lot of cultural baggage that you and I may not be able to associate with, but you have to know that as you hear the story of Philip proclaiming Jesus in Samaria. Um, as, as Philip goes, it says, um, first of all, in verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So at the very beginning, people scattering from the persecution, they bring the word with them and they proclaim that word. My translation says that they are preaching the word. Very literally, in Greek, the word uh, euangelizomai, which is a, a Greek word for evangelize or to bring the good news. So in this verse, it literally says they go speaking the good news, bringing the good news. So it's not, I don't like preaching the word because it, it sounds a little less clear. They're not just spreading the word. It's the good news. This is the news about Jesus. They are proclaiming the gospel. And Philip gives us a very specific example of that. Verse 5 says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Okay, so maybe the seeds have been planted, remember? Jesus had that encounter with a Samaritan woman and they did talk about the Messiah, the Christ. The Samaritans are expecting the Messiah and the Christ. Their beliefs might be a little bit different than the Jews about the Messiah and what the Messiah will look like, but they still had some understanding that there is this great prophet, deliverer that is going to come, and we will follow that person. So what does Philip do? He proclaims to them the Messiah, the Christ. And who is for Philip the Messiah? Jesus. So yes, he is proclaiming Jesus, but there's that point of contact. What is it about Jesus that he's proclaiming to them that he is the Messiah, the Christ? So he's picking up on his kiss. There are differences in religion, in religious ideas between Samaritans and the Jews. He's he's kind of overlooking all of that for now. He's just going to that point of contact that that you're looking for the Messiah. I'm going to tell you about the Messiah. And he, he does that. And here's the interesting thing. The crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. What's being described here, if you didn't know that this was happening in the book of Acts and that Philip was the one doing it, but you just heard about somebody going out and people were paying attention to him, and he was saying wonderful things and doing wonderful things. He was casting out demons and he was healing the paralyzed and the sick. Who would you think that's a story about? Exactly the point. Luke has set that pattern of Jesus is the one who has this power and authority. He has given that power and authority to the apostles. And so in the early chapters of Acts, you see the apostles doing these same things. This is a part of that kingdom work that God has granted them to do. It's a good thing that shows the kingdom of God, but what it also does is validates or confirms the message that they're bringing, because they're seen to be just like Jesus right? I mean, they're not going around saying, I'm the new Jesus, follow me. But the message that they're bringing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, is being confirmed not just by the words that they're speaking, but also by the actions that they're doing. Remember when Peter heals that man outside the temple and they say, how did you do this? And, he, and Peter immediately says, it's not me. 
This is Jesus. It's done in his name under his authority. And so Philip here, you know, doing the same thing, carrying the same thing out. The interesting thing here is that we heard Stephen doing things that were kind of like an apostle, that he was proclaiming that word and, uh, and standing for it here. And he was performing miraculous signs as well. Stephen wasn't an apostle. He was one chosen to wait on tables. Philip, it's true there is a disciple of Jesus named Philip, but also in Acts 6, there was another table server by the name Philip. It's not 100% clear which Philip this is. That is, is this the Philip of Acts 6 that we heard was like Stephen, one of the people who waited on tables? Or is this Philip, one of Jesus's disciples? The weight of evidence, I think, is that this is one of the table servers. A couple of reasons. One, we just heard that as the people were scattered because of the fear of persecution, the people scattered except who? except the apostles, right? And this Philip is going to show up in these two stories, and then we're really not going to hear about him again until one kind of throwaway passage in uh, Acts 21.8. And in that passage, this Philip is called Philip the Evangelist. He's not called Philip the Apostle. They have to call him something else to distinguish him. And he's in Caesarea, a city on the coast of the Mediterranean, which is the last place this Philip is found. Okay? So that's why this Philip probably is not the apostle. Uh, there's just a common name there. But he is another one of the guys like Stephen. The point then is that these signs and wonders were first done by Jesus and then by the apostles, but now other people who aren't even apostles are doing it. The point of these signs is always to show that the message that the person bringing is valid. It's true. It's not just them saying and doing this, but that power can be seen by others and know there's something to this guy. This is important. And the awesome thing about the Samaritans is they see and hear this and they're filled with joy. It's like they've connected the dots and despite whatever baggage is there, it's overcome by his message, both in word and in deed. Okay? And you think happily ever after, this is really, really awesome, except now Luke throws in some, some tougher stuff. Okay, one thing that's tough is that there among the Samaritans is this guy named Simon. Simon is described as somebody who is practicing magic or sorcery. Um, in some traditions, uh, I don't even know if your Bible does this, this Simon is called Simon Magus. And that's not like related to the word maggot. It's related to the word, our word in English. You can pretty easily see that, magic. But the interesting thing is this word, magus, which we're going to run into a couple more of these individuals who are called magicians or sorcerers. But this is the same word in Greek that we encounter every epiphany. So those wise men from the East... They're called magi. So in, this is Latin, you're learning Latin right now. The only difference between these two words is that this word is singular, this word is plural, but it's the same word. So that's one of the reasons why, um, I don't know if all pastors have this, but, but I try to call the guys that come to give their gifts to Jesus the magi, not wise men, because in, in their day, especially among the Jews, when they call somebody this, that's really usually never a compliment. It, it identifies them as people who are associated with paganism. 
So in these guys' case from, uh, from Matthew, that's because they are looking at the stars and they believe that the stars are connected to what happens here and, you know, astrology and horoscopes and all of that stuff. That's, that's not following the truth in the Bible. But there's other kinds of sorcery or magic that also includes, you know, performing these tricks. Um, and some of them might be, you know, just kind of a sleight of hand thing, but other forms of magic can be real. Witchcraft and sorcery are real things that, that are part of the occult, that you can call on Satan and his demonic powers to show off those powers in order to lead people astray. Sometimes it's never really clear whether people are just, you know, um, really good at the, the slate of hand kind of thing, which is where it, it is for most of us. When we see magicians, we know it's entertainment. It's not real. There's a trick. And if you knew the trick, then you wouldn't be so impressed. But there are other kinds that practice the, the darker arts. Simon is associated with all of this stuff. And he's so good that in Samaria, he has basically has his own followers, people that believe that he is someone or something really great. He calls himself the great power. And that, that we don't really know where that name comes from. That's not really a name that Jews would have called God or that the Samaritans would have called God, but they're so impressed by what he's done that they're following him. But this Simon sees the things that Philip is doing and he realizes, I'm out of luck because his tricks are better than my tricks. And instead of following me, uh, I'm no longer the, the, the cool guy on the block. Philip is. And so, I don't know. But in the first part of the, the message of what happens in Samaria, we're told that the people follow Philip. They believe him. They believe his message and they are baptized. Again, this is part of what happened at Pentecost, right? What must we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. And so that's what happens here in the Samaritan city. So, okay, Simon was a troublemaker, but it seems like, hey, even Simon believed. This is verse 13, right? Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with, with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So this might be the first hint that after Philip does these things, he's, he's right there with Philip. Hey, Philip, you, you, you need an apprentice? You, you, you need somebody else? The crowd control, it's a little hard to manage. I, I know how to handle some of this stuff. I could help you out. We, we don't have any reason to think that Simon is disingenuous. He, he believes and is baptized. The Holy Spirit works. And, and when we are baptized, we receive that Holy Spirit. But the truth is that we can reject the Holy Spirit and his work. And so that's where one of the wrinkles happens with Simon. So we'll hear more about him in just a second. But that's wrinkle number one. At the beginning, it sounds like everything went really, really well, spectacularly well in the Samaritan city because the people see and hear what Philip is doing and they believe they're filled with joy. Simon, we'll talk about him. The second thing and the bedeviling thing, maybe for some of you, for some of you, this won't be a problem at all, uh, happens in verse 16. So right after this, we hear that the apostles learn about how the Samaritans received the word of God and they send a delegation. They send two people to check out what's going on. Again, if you understand that divide between the Samaritans and the Jews, you might understand why this is happening. Like, is it possible that the Samaritans are, are, you know, like our arch enemies. They've, they've given up their sinful ways and they're now a part of us. They're a part of the body of Christ. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They've been baptized. Is, is that real? Did this just happen? So they send the apostles to go check this out. But here's where the wrinkle happens. Because the apostles go to, to kind of confirm what's going on. 
But it also says that the Samaritans have not yet received the Holy Spirit. Only have they been baptized in the name of Jesus. And again, if you look at that verse and say, what? They received, they didn't receive the Holy Spirit, but they were baptized. I thought baptism and Holy Spirit go together. What's happening here? It doesn't matter who you are, um, what Christian denomination you are a part of, if you're Lutheran, if you're Baptist, if you're Catholic, if you're Orthodox, everybody that comes to this verse says, what? That, that doesn't, it, it doesn't sound right. Something must be going on. And so everybody has trouble at this verse because it doesn't seem to follow what they expect, the normal pattern. And so you have to do something with it. Because this verse is such a problem verse and people don't know what to do with it, I made a separate handout on it. We could get bogged down and spend all of our time just on this verse. It's, it's that uh, confusing to so many people. But I tried to, on one page, front and back, kind of walk through just some of the questions people ask about this and, you know, possible ways of, of understanding what's going on. Because if you look at this and say, okay, they were baptized, but they haven't read the Holy, received the Holy Spirit, we as Lutherans, that doesn't sound right, because like I said, baptism, Holy Spirit, they seem to go together. So was there something wrong? Was it because Philip wasn't an apostle? Could only apostles give the Holy Spirit? Was there something wrong in the gospel that he proclaimed? Did he not really give the gospel? Um, because we know that John preached repentance, but John never baptized people with the Holy Spirit. He, he only was preparing the way. Jesus' disciples afterwards would do that. Um, so we're trying to look for problems here. Like, why did it not take? Why was the Holy Spirit not given? And it seems that when you try to answer the question that way, that is try to find a problem with something that happened here, there's no warrant from the text to come to any of those conclusions. The apostles are not coming and say, Philip, you idiot, you got the message wrong. Do it this way next time. He is not rebuked. The people are not rebuked. You guys really weren't repentant. You're not doing it right. Here's how you have to do it. Um, and we see Philip after this will go on and everything sort of goes smoothly. The same gospel's there. Baptism is there. Uh, so it, it doesn't seem like there's anything wrong here. So why? Why is it that they haven't received the Holy Spirit? Was that before Pentecost or after? No, this is after Pentecost. Pentecost is chapter 2. We're in chapter 8. Well, that's, that's the question, right? How, do they receive it at, at baptism? Do they receive it at some time before or some time after? Um, the, the best way that I can understand it, and I, there may be a different answer, seems to be that you have to understand this is unusual, okay? How do I know it's unusual? Well, first of all, the gospel is going to the Samaritans, this is not just the gospel going to another fellow Jew. We've always believed the Old Testament. We've always believed that God would send a Messiah. Now we know the Messiah is Jesus. Jews did not look at Samaritans as, as equals. This is not a fellow brother, my Samaritan friend. This is like going to a different religious group. Now, we today would say, but they shared so much in common. Uh, how could you say it's a different religious group? That's just how they thought of one another. They're, they're not the same. And so when this message is going out to a different religious group, one of the questions is going to be, is this where denominations come from? Like, first there were Lutherans, and then there were Baptists. And we all know that we Lutherans are closer to God than the Baptists, but we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm being facetious here. Um, so is it that there are Jews, and now there are Samaritans, and now there are two kinds of Christians? That's absolutely not the case. There is only one Jesus, one body of Christ. They're all going to be on the same standing, one church. The problem is, they needed help to understand that. How do we know they needed help to understand that? 
we're going to see it crystal clear when the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And they rack their heads over this. How can Gentiles be Christians when they're not Jews, right? Jewish heritage and cultural practices and being a Christian, those things were kind of tied together. Can you be a Christian but have another background? And the answer is going to be, of course, yes. So something really special is happening here that the gospel is going to these people. In Pentecost, something special happens when the gospel is first proclaimed publicly. That something special that happens is they receive the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this before and said, oh, they didn't have the Holy Spirit before? No, they did have the Holy Spirit before, but now they're given another special gift of the Holy Spirit that they were able to proclaim in multiple languages, that gospel message. The Holy Spirit made that presence seen and known and understood in what was happening there on that day. That marked a very special event. But every other time since then, we didn't hear about tongues of fire, did we? We didn't hear about multiple languages being spoken. On that first Pentecost, the Spirit gives this special gift, and again, these gifts, these signs point to confirm the message. The message that Jesus is the Messiah is a new message and not one that somebody is going to just automatically go, oh yeah, of course I believe that. But when that message is coupled by the signs of the Spirit, the, the tongues of fire and the languages, they know that God sanctions this message. And that gives that, that standing. And we'll see that, yes, the disciples uh, performed signs, but the tongues thing doesn't seem to be a part of it. So sometimes when the gospel goes out, there are different manifestations that the Holy Spirit accompanied with that message so that people might believe. Here, because the gospel for the first time is going to a new people group, the idea is, where are the signs? Why wasn't Philip speaking in tongues or, you know, other things that the people would receive so that they knew the Holy Spirit was there and present? Because the problem of the Holy Spirit is you can't see the Holy Spirit. You can see the fruit of the Spirit, but you can't see the Spirit itself. They want confirmation of what's going on and happening, but they didn't, they didn't see it. So what the apostles the idea here is the apostles are going to Samaria and they're not seeing tongues of fire. They're not seeing people speaking in tongues. Oh, uh, how, how, do we, how do we know for sure that the, this, this is the Spirit's work, that they are really a part of this one church? And so the apostles pray that the Holy Spirit would be seen among them as well. And Luke doesn't tell us any details about what happens, but the apostles leave knowing that they too are Christians. They too are part of the fellow church. So what we kind of do with this verse is say, it's not that they hadn't received the Holy Spirit before. If the word was proclaimed, the Holy Spirit works through that word. If they repented and believed, which they did, the Holy Spirit made all of that happen. If they were baptized, the Holy Spirit is received in baptism. There are other very clear scriptures that point to those truths. So what seems to be lacking here is not the Holy Spirit that was necessary for them to be saved, but a, a special gift of the Holy Spirit. And we know that not everybody receives the, the same gifts of the Holy Spirit, but it seems that they were looking for a specific gift, something that they could see and they weren't seeing it. It did not mean that they weren't Christians or weren't saved. It's that they were looking for something more. The reason why this seems to be the safest explanation is because when we're going to talk about the story of Cornelius in a little bit, it's the first example of the gospel going to the Gentiles. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Judea or Jerusalem and Samaria and Judea and the ends of the ends of the earth. Um, when the message goes out to the Gentiles, 
Peter is wrestling with this and finally comes to the conclusion that the Spirit is poured out on all people. That language of the Spirit pouring out comes from Acts 2. In Acts 2, when Peter talked about the Holy Spirit being poured out, he said, so that all the sons and daughters will prophesy and and do these things in God's name. Um, It's not Holy Spirit was not present up until that point. Nobody was saved. Nobody really had faith. It's this special gift of the Holy Spirit that marks the end, the messianic age, the age of God's kingdom. That's a secondary thing that they seem to be looking for. Um, It's hard to to wrestle with that. Uh, There might be other people that have tried to come up with other explanations, but near as I can tell, that's That's what we have to do with that verse. The biggest principle, whenever we come to hard verses of the Bible, things that we don't understand, we never just work on that verse alone. We look at the whole scriptures, the whole context, the whole story, and use what is clear to try to help figure out what is less clear. All right. And by that principle, that seems to be the safest conclusion to to come up with, with this verse. But Again, everybody struggles with this verse and nobody really like, what is this doing? This is really weird. All right. I spent too long talking. Uh, We're not going to finish chapter eight. I could really try in 30 seconds, but I'm not going to. We'll get back next time to Simon. I said he was a problem and we're going to see how he's a problem. But then we'll move on to Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch uh, and see what's happening there. So thanks a lot. Uh, A lot of a lot of good stuff happening, but sometimes we get bogged down. That's okay. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net, and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.